that's a real issue with a film like this. You need to win the audience over in a way that they just, even if they're like logical reservations, they get pushed aside, don't they? Because your heart's with it. My heart wasn't with it here. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about The Little Mermaid and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse starting with The Little Mermaid. So this is the live action version of the classic Disney animation. So to start off with, Mike, how do you feel about the fact that Disney's taking all of their old classic animations and turning them into movies uh, with the same content with real actors? Um, I wish there weren't. they weren't doing that, <laughs> but they are. So let's talk about the real world. They are doing it. The 1989 original really very quickly it was called a classic when you mentioned it as a classic. It really was when it first came out. And when we talk nowadays about what has become known as the Disney power princess syndrome, uh, a lot of that is attributed to this film. Uh, Little Mermaid came out in 1989. And what strikes me about it, I mean, I liked it when it came out and, and uh, beautifully animated. It's just, it's really, you know, it's a very enjoyable film. But you know what? There are a lot of enjoyable animated films. They don't all have staying power for whatever reason, right? Some come and go. This one, from when it first came out, not only had a huge following, but a very loyal following. It's as if, you know, if you watched it as a kid in 1989, let's say, as you now are becoming yourself a parent, what are you going to show your kids? You're going to show them The Little Mermaid. It's that kind of a film. It's had that intergenerational kind of interest uh, throughout its history. And as another indication of the kind of lasting influence it's had, just last year, the Library of Congress added The Little Mermaid to its National Film Registry. And in the media coverage of that, it was like in the headline, it was in the photograph of of the 25 films that were named, it was Little Mermaid that was most often singled out in that coverage, which I, I looked at again here. So that's very much to the credit of the original. Uh, one reason why I'm not crazy about the whole notion of, of taking an animated film and doing a, a live action version of it is just simply uh, there's a kind of creative paucity, I think, oftentimes in Hollywood, where rather than thinking up new and original material, they keep recycling, whether it's a sequel to something else or taking an animated film, doing a live action version. If you actually look at the release schedules, there's very little that I would call like original content. It's almost always hitting the the replay button that way. So just on a kind of general philosophical level, I'm not crazy about the idea. Now, if we talk about individual films, that's another matter. You can say, well, here is an animated film. Here's a live action. Which do you prefer? Was it worth doing? Yeah, I I, I will gladly give ground there in individual cases. I'm not giving ground here or or water, however you want to phrase this, uh, the watering metaphors. Here's one reason why. Okay, on the face of it, you have a classic animated film. It's being done now as a live action film. I'm putting quotation marks around live action because almost everything we see in this film is computer generated. And so when it's at that level, it's like, well, is it really even live action? It, it, it's almost like the, the, you know a semantic game at this point as to what to call it. And so when you do have human actors in it, sometimes they are playing against the proverbial green screen most of the way through. And the effects can be really effective in their own way, but um, it's not like fully live action. So to me, having watched this, and I'm I'm not crazy about this film, but it works well enough. By the end of the film, I'm thinking, well, was it worthwhile in the sense that, you know, I know the basic storyline and I appreciate the animation, but this one's really in its own way as animated as the first one. 
You know, you've touched on the thing that bothered me the whole time watching it. And I did uh, spring for the 3D because I like every uh, special effect I can get. I did think that the actor playing Ariel was fabulous, Halle Bailey. I thought she looked enough like the animation that I remembered that it worked for me. But I thought the biggest drawback to the movie was Sebastian and Flounder. They just looked so poorly rendered, especially the crab. I found that really disappointing because, you know, these are, you know, two beloved characters and they just didn't come across at all. And it's, it, I almost wish they'd use a real fish and a real crab because it just looks so incredibly fake. Thank you for saying that, because it, it took me a while to, to like zero in on that as I was watching. Like, why am I not satisfied by those scenes? And then it hit me exactly what you said. You know, you're you're watching, and, and again, you know, as Ariel, she's good. Now, it's it's a real challenge for the actor here. How much depth or or range should you bring to it? She tends to have the same two or three expressions, which which keeps it sort of in the quasi animated realm. But but she's really well cast. She's an R&B singer. I mean, the, the actress brings the singing talent with her, and she's really good in, in the film. But it's a limited range. When you think about it, she's got like a repertory of three or four facial expressions, and, and that. But that's sort of what the movie's calling for, right? It's not looking for much beyond that. But anyway, to your essential point, in the scenes where she's interacting with you know a fish, a crab, whatever, some of those subsidiary characters. They really, at a technical level, seemed at, at what I would call like Saturday morning cartoon kind mm -hmm. of rendering, right? And so here's the problem. If you have uh, an actress who's doing a, a, you know, what would you have to do to play a convincing mermaid, right? I mean, she's doing a, a good job, all things considered, right? And so if she's looking down at her fins or legs or whatever she has at the moment. Like she does a credible job with that. But then when you have what you're mentioning there, uh, these, these critters around her that are not just an fully animated, but just seem like it's kind of blah, what I call blah animation. I'm thinking, well, you would almost, and it sounds silly to say it out loud, but you said it out loud already, so I'll say it too. Like almost, you'd almost think, maybe you should have like a real fish or a real crab or something. And it's, I think one of the challenges, and it's it's hard to overcome here, like how real should it be? You're gonna have a lot of animation already, that trying to have that meshing of, of real live action and computer generated stuff, we do it all the time nowadays in films, but it doesn't always work. It's not always as convincing, uh, as heartwarming as it should be. So I think you've really hit on one of the problems in the film is if you're going to do live action, how far and to what extent should it genuinely be live action? I also felt like the movie was more successful when we were underwater because then you're in this sort of magical world, you know, with anemones and, you know, seagrass and, bubbles and it's blue and it's pretty and she's apparently got all of these sisters who are in one scene all arranged like barbie dolls each one classically beautiful in a different way but where are all the mermen i mean it's well, not you're, you're, very perfectly you're, realized why is she why does she need to go to earth okay you're asking some basic ontological questions <laughs> <laughs> and, and and first of all the, the way the mermaids are lined up they are like barbie dolls of course we'll have barbie in movie theaters this summer so we'll, we'll get to see a lot of barbies that way but they actually are and it's kind of a smile inducing actually when they're all lined up like a beauty pageant kind of thing mm -hmm. 
again, you're wondering, well, what are the laws of this particular realm uh, underwater? Like, all oh, these mermaids, where are the mermen? That's one thing. I started to think about that, and then I stopped myself. Like, no, this is like getting creepy. Like, I don't even want to think about it. And then it got even creepier, and I thought, like, why? She feels impelled that, that she's living underwater. And you're absolutely right. The underwater footage is the best. The film works best when it stays underwater. Just let it swim through those waters, all the colorful creatures and coral and this and that. It's beautiful to watch oftentimes. It has trouble more often when it goes above the surface. One reason is she has Ariel somehow just determined that, you know, she wants to get away from King Triton, her father and that underwater kingdom. She wants to fall in love with a human being, a human man. And at that level, it's like, well, where are you taking this? Because that's, again, where I started to think about it. And I deliberately stopped myself. Because anytime you think about a cross-species relationship like this, somehow, you know, mermaid to human man, it's like, I don't know if I want to follow this through completely. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody asked me about the movie after I had seen it. And they said, what did you think of Ariel? I said, I thought she was great. I thought she had a beautiful voice, uh, a beautiful girl did a decent job with the, with the role. And they said, who played the prince? I'm like, I don't know. I, who cares? Some, you know, generic person. When you are up in the real world, that felt almost more artificial than what you knew they were making up underwater. Well, you know what? The, the actor's name is Jonah Howard King. And I had to actually write it down and look at it because it's not a name I remembered as I watched the film. And it's, it, there's a generic quality of the performance. He is Prince Charming. He's Prince Eric, actually, but he's Prince Charming, right? And and he has like zero, from my perspective, zero personality or character or whatever. He's just like generic handsome. And that's who she's going to fall in love with. Now, we should probably talk about race here because the, the film clearly wants us to, to some extent to either think about it or not think about it. But the fact that you have a black actress playing Ariel and, and a, a very white and very English actor playing Eric. This is something that's curious about the film. And critics have written about this for this uh, version of Little Mermaid. Are we supposed to think about this or not think about it? If it's colorblind casting at a certain point, it's just like, well, you know, you've got human beings, you've got mermaids, you've got uh, crabs and flounders and all, and you're going to have actors of different races and ethnicities and what have you, and just cast it as you want to cast it. And then when you look within like Eric's family, he has a, a, a black mother, but it's mentioned that she had adopted him. Or something. So sometimes it's sort of like called to our attention. So how does this black mother have a white child? Okay, he was adopted, whatever. Other scenes don't deal with it whatsoever. And I think the film itself hasn't quite resolved on this point. What I'm getting at is, should we notice or not notice? Should we care or not care about it? It's just sort of there in the film. And what what happens that's a little unhinging, I think almost, is that for some reason, she settles on on this generic uh, white guy, this handsome white guy, that this is who she's going to fall in love with. And I don't know if I'm meant to think about that as I'm watching it. What did you find yourself thinking? Because I was never fully resolved in the sense, I didn't think the film itself was fully resolved on should we notice and care or not? Well, it was interesting that she had this longing to know more about what the world was like outside of the water, which is kind of that classic cave allegory. But what, what is not clear, unless you're simply reading it as the fairy tale that it is, why would she fall in love with Eric in the first place? He seems completely generic. There doesn't seem to be any anything that he does where she would even notice him, except for the fact that he's the prince. So he's, you know, the alpha in this world. I, it's very peculiar why, why you would leave a magical underworld realm for living on earth. And of course, the fairy tale makes it clear that when she gives up her fins for feet, that it's a stabbing pain her entire life. So why is he worth it? 
I don't think he is actually. Uh, and, and, you know, the underwater scenes are so marvelous at times. Why would you want to leave that world? When it gets above water and then on land, um, it's a generic kingdom in a lot of ways and, and kind of like some of them boring characters, whatever. And watch the blocking. I mean, in terms of how actors are placed, you know, watch the blocking. There are scenes where she's above water and on the ground and he's like on the other side of, of the beach or whatever, where you can almost sense like they're being thrown together. It's just like, OK, you were standing here. Now I stand there. I think, well, is that the attraction? It's simply it's like the director saying, OK, you're standing to the left. Now stand to the right. And I'm being facetious with it. But watching those scenes, technically, it did, I didn't feel like love was pulling them together. I felt like the director was saying, now you'll stand next to him. And will this be the moment where you have a kiss? Because that's part of the, the, the magic of the thing. Or will it not? And again, where it seems mandated within the script, and I'm not feeling like my heart is here or, or that somehow her heart is here. That's a real problem with this film. You feel like it has a mechanical quality that for whatever reason, she feels impelled to break the surface and fall in love with the prince and so on. But you know what? That's where you're simply following the, the dictates of, of the script template that you have, right? And, and you're not, and, and if you don't emotionally feel identification with Ariel at that point, it, it seems really forced. It seems artificial actually. And, and what should be a really happy ending of the two them together i just think oh you know oh brother you know it had to be that way because that's what the script says on on page you know 90 something that's a real issue with a film like this you need to win the audience over in a way that they just even if they're like logical reservations they get pushed aside don't they because your heart's with it my heart wasn't with it here you can almost understand her falling in love with the guy who runs the aquarium shop <laughs> i like that idea you know what i mean uh, but it just made no sense to me that she would that she would fall for her. Or Eric, they don't. He get, has a tank get, waiting for her. He set it up for me. <laughs> That's love. <laughs> now that is love. Now, of course, watching it, I I couldn't help but think about Splash, and one of the things that happens in Splash is at the end of the movie, Tom Hanks decides to join the mermaid. He goes with her because apparently it could go either way. She could stay here on land, be you know have legs, or you can go with her and you know develop a tail and and live underwater. But that's not brought up in this at all. Of course, that's not part of the story, but I couldn't help but think about Splash and how it would have been a better story if she had convinced Eric to go with her to the underworld. Or even if you weren't convinced, that would be a really fascinating scene where they had that discussion. <laughs> because yes. It, it, it would bring to the surface in another sense all the things that kind of have us a bit troubled as to what are the, the, the rules of this game and, and how do the characters feel about this and that. They never really talk it out that way. Now, again, maybe that's for valid reasons, like how, how silly it might become, how ridiculous if you really talked it through. Uh, I don't know. In a film like this one, are you better off like bringing these issues up or just ignoring them? I mean, it's 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 a, a vexing creative issue. Should you try to deal with all these? Because after all, I mean, starting with mermaids, right? I mean, you know, like how plausible, how logical, how whatever. Uh, at a certain point, if you're dealing with magic, sometimes the magic is just there as what I call what's called a given. It's just there. That's how it works. And you don't question it. And, and so, you know, I, I'm not resolved on that point either as to which way to go with it. But this is I think it would have been interesting to have somehow. But I don't think I don't think Eric has a brain cell in his head in some ways. I don't know if he's capable of that discussion. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the same impression. So one thing I wanted to mention was this goes over uh, two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. And it's too long. And since this is supposed to be for kids. It's it's doubly terrible to uh, not edit it down to a decent length. Now, now I had that. 
Thank no, you for saying that. I have exactly the same reservation about it. It really, the film works well for small kids. You know, I, I was there with a lot of families or speaking of family, a lot of families around me and it works well that way. But when you push over two hours like that, particularly for a very young audience, there's no reason for that. We all know the basic storyline and you can deal with it in, in under two hours. So this film could have lost easily 15 or 20 minutes, I think. I think that's again where, you know, even with effective underwater scenes, at a certain point, okay, enough already with it, you know, and, and a film like this, again, this is the the mixed blessing of the special effects we have now, the computer generated ones. Once you hit that button, how do you know to, to you know, hit the stop button on that? Because once you keep going, like, here's an interesting critter, let's let's have the camera follow her for a few minutes. And it just doesn't know where, where to stop with that. So yeah, I think the film should have been cut back uh, easily by 20 minutes. I agree. Um, I do want to say two things that I really did like were the songs. If you've seen the animated version, uh, you'll know all the words to all the songs. That part was a lot of fun. And Melissa McCarthy as Ursula the Sea Witch, fabulous. Well, yes and no there. And Pat Carroll had voiced it in the original and was terrific with it. With Melissa McCarthy, she is really funny. But there's that unleashed quality here. She's vamping in such a way that you can you're reminded of certain real life performers that she might be somehow you know emulating. But it's just so cut loose that at a, where I did laugh at it was because you know she she's got her tentacles and she's got her wiles and her evil uh, schemes and so on. She's actually the banished sister of, of King Triton, who's Ariel's father. So there's some family intrigue there. There are some scenes that made me laugh, where, like she's charging directly towards the camera. Even and that is kind of scary. Like Melissa McCarthy, all, all done up and coming right at us. Some of that is funny, but even that I think could have been trimmed a bit because it, it sort of wears out its welcome a bit because it's like freewheeling venom on her part, and it's like okay like everything's a target for her. well i get that point but like after the second or third iteration of it you know i'm getting at here maybe cut that back a little bit modulate it a bit yeah i i really liked it um i do want to mention for people who haven't seen the movie that the original voice of ariel the woman who was the original voice appears as the person who gives ariel a dinglehopper fork during her and prince eric's tour of the market so you know look for jody benson so let's move on to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. All right, I saw this yesterday. And I have to say, Mike, I'm one of these people who I like to speed things up. I like to read fast. I like to take things in quickly. This movie ran me over like a truck. It was so frantic. I had a really hard time following the story because everything moved so fast. Like breakneck speed. I mean, even the the few times they would put up, you know, the little comic book uh, text of what people were saying or thinking, it was gone before I could even read it. What was your experience? Yeah, I think it's overloaded with characters and storyline and so on. I think that's a, a problem here. Just to get us grounded with it, it's a sequel to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And so across the Spider-Verse follows up on the 2018 film. Uh, what I did like about it, there's a very convincing sense of our protagonist being a 15-year-old teenager. That comes across really well in, in, in the characterization and Shamik Moore's um, vocal performance and so on. And in that same respect, one thing that works really well is how realistically it's placed within a recognizable New York City. It's got that what I call like bodega level reality to it. And there's some, a lot of like nice topical and local references that way. It helps to keep it grounded. 
but so so that I did enjoy, and it's not often I say I enjoy one of these films. I enjoyed those aspects of this film. What I did not enjoy is what you've mentioned. There's so many other subsidiary characters, what becomes known as the spider society, indeed, of all these different spider people, whatever. And some of them pop up so quickly and it moves so fast that it just seems uh, like, like helter skelter. It just seems like almost chaotic at times that way. And it can be actually difficult sometimes in this multiverse to, to track all that. Now I know that super fans will have no trouble with that whatsoever. In a millisecond, they'll get every reference that I don't quite get, or I'm a slow kid and it takes me a minute to get it. Uh, but I think for uh, more casual viewers, it can be sort of headache inducing at times. How, how, so I know what you're saying, Marie, that you feel like you're just being assaulted by the movie <laughs> as you're watching it. <laughs> But everything just flies by so fast. But I guess that makes sense because they had a thousand people working on it, 240 characters across six universes. I mean, that is a lot to keep track of. So it's I guess the only way they could, it's a lot of universes. And this is also, this was um, two hours and 20 minutes. I can't even imagine what it would have been like if they played it at a more normal speed. We'd still, we'd still be sitting there watching the movie, Mike. Well, but, you know, this is a, a sort of philosophical jousting point. If you're a real fan of this, you can't get too much of it. And, and that's why so many of these films are overloaded in terms of running time, as we say at great length now, uh, yeah, in terms of running time, but also in terms of character interaction and bringing in, uh, you know, in terms of multiverse um, thinking, bringing in characters from your own franchise or other franchises. Once you've, it's almost a Pandora's box kind of situation. Once you've opened that lid you can't close it again you know that lid's been opened right and so all those things have flown out and now uh, with something like this you're going to get a lot of cross fertilization you're going to get like you know spider characters from other installments or other characters you know anything can happen at this point and, and it's one reason why uh for some of us the film will seem kind of overloaded we perhaps want a more conventional narrative arc and storyline and so on i think what keeps the film again uh more or less on an even keel is the fact that our protagonist again is, is a brooklyn teenager who's very relatable and i i think when he's on screen that helped keep me tethered to the storyline which otherwise I, I sometimes couldn't follow but but that he's there he's real and he's he is great and i do like the comic book style of this that you know, it's not live action people. It's, you know, drawn. Uh, I think that's a a benefit to the story. But it's so, um, I mean, they just zoomed by. Thing. I, wanted, I wanted to look at some of the things that they were showing, but it nothing stayed on the screen long enough to to ponder it. Well, you know what, what, with this particular film, they've already announced we've got more story coming, right? There, there are more installments and so on. And that's why, like, particularly towards the end of this film, it throws a lot at us, doesn't it? Because it's sort of like, like it doesn't even like tie up loose ends so much as produce or introduce further loose ends. And, and there's enough thrown into it there that you realize, well, we're going to have future installments here. And again, that's for me as a viewer where, where I just feel like, oh, my goodness, we've got how many more installments coming? How many more Spider-Verses? And again, if you are a fan of it, that's great news. You want you want all that. In my case, I would want, if not an absolute closure, at least a cleaner narrative arc. Now, I did think that some of the new spider people or spider critters that we meet in the movie were fun and imaginative. I did like that part of it. And I did want to mention that uh, the sequence on Earth 13122, the Lego universe, was animated by a 14-year-old named Preston Mutanga who was hired after Phil Lord and Christopher Miller were impressed with his Twitter video recreating the entire trailer with Lego. 
So that's one of the fun things that you get to see is, you know, like the Lego version of Spider-Man being one of the in one of the uh, multiverses. Stuff like that is fun. And I think perfectly situated in like a comic book universe, something kids would like. The other thing they kept doing was showing you a character and then they would show you like the comic book cover that it came from. It's like they slapped the comic book down, like now you've seen that character. And they did that several times. But again, it was like, wait, I, I almost wanted to take notes and look all this stuff up. Well, we, we're, we're film critics. We should take notes. <laughs> and I, I've done a lot of writing in the dark, but I'm, I'm not sure I could still make sense of some of that. But some of the subsidiary, those secondary characters you alluded to, are fun to watch. The, the Spider-Woman character played by Hallie Steinfeld. You know, there's some characters like that where, where it's, it, they're enjoyable when they're on screen. But again, it, it's fleeting. They, they come, they go, they, they intersect in various ways. And that's where, for my money, I would want maybe maybe fewer characters and a little more character development, you know, a little more substance. But there's a kind of um, nervous quality here where it just it flits from one thing to another, doesn't it? it? It doesn't, you know, linger or develop anything at length. Being generous about this, one would say, well, future installments will give more time to those other characters. I also was thinking while I was watching it about that famous um aha video back in the 80s uh, take on me which is part animated part real people and they kind of blend back and forth between the two with all the different things they did with the different multiverses i kind of wished that they had had something like that where you went out of the animation into live action and back well yeah i like what you're saying there because, you know, think back to some of the groundbreaking films in that respect, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit type films, right, where it was so exactly. interesting to think about that interaction between live action and animation. And I know we're not no longer going to have that same sense of wonder. You know, we're, we're now acclimated to that kind of interaction. But I still think there's some films nowadays that could do more with that. You could have more fun with it than some of them do. So, yeah, I think you raise a really good point there. There's there are some creative possibilities that nowadays they don't seem to occur to people because it's like, well, yeah, we're going to have this animated and that live. But think about all the things you could do with that. It could be a lot of fun. It is sometimes, but it could be more fun more often. One of the things that you can't do that they are able to do with animated characters is their eyes are able to move, squint and widen. And, you know, they're able to do expressions with their costume that are not possible when it's a real person. You make a good point. Animation has become so sophisticated that thank goodness the eyes can now move. Because think back to like the, the old days of Saturday morning cartoons where the character's eyes were like, not only like enormous, but fixed, right? And it's like, does this character ever blink? You know, <laughs> how does she sleep at night with those big open eyes? And nowadays, I think actually in the facial modeling, particularly, they've, they've become more, more subtle, more nuanced, not as much as they could be, frankly, but I think we've moved in the right direction there so that those animated faces, ironically, have more animation to them. There's also some fun scenes where they, uh, I think they swipe a, a pizza out of midair. No, it's hot dogs. Then you see a, a splorch of their, you know, web material sticking a dollar or whatever it is on the on the vendor's shirt. So it's not like they're stealing, you know, they just can't stop. You know, here's the money, grab the food. Some of those scenes well, are fun. That's what I referred to earlier, that you feel like you're in New York neighborhoods, like, like you've got a street vendor and, and these are basically good characters, whatever. So, you know, you're not stealing the, the, the hot dog, that kind of a thing and, and leaving some. Those are nice little touches, aren't they? You wouldn't need those necessarily, but they help keep the film more or less grounded in that respect. Because th this is a 15 year old kid and, and this is the world he lives in. And, and scenes like that actually are important beyond what they might seem to be. I think this will be a huge hit with our students. I have to say, when I saw it yesterday, the theater was packed. 
How about when you saw it? You should have taken role. I mean, you should see what, <laughs> how many of your students were there. These films are extremely popular, and, and I, you know, you can understand why each one is sort of prominent. And this is the case, like with the Spider-Man franchise. We've had live action versions. We have fully animated ones. And the film we're talking about is following up on on the animated film from 2018. The storyline takes place just like a year later. So it's very much tracking this kid in his teen years. And so if I were part of the creative team, it's like we're all set then for whatever comes next. Right. You know, if you're 15 in one film, you can get to be 16 in the next one. Now, how many different versions of this do you think they're going to continue to make? How many different Spider-Verses are we are we in for, Mike? You're inviting me to have a nightmare. And, and so <laughs> and so uh, I think this is truly, you know, speaking of the multiverse mentality, this truly is a franchise which by its very nature, you know, really lends itself to bringing in different versions of spider people or, or you know, live action, animated, what have you. The, the sky's the limit, literally, in a case like this. It can just keep going. And, and these are such popular films that that's what people want. That's what we'll give them, you know. So uh, who am I to complain about that? And I actually did enjoy this film more than I thought I would. So how's that? I enjoyed it too. I'm just looking forward to it coming down on DVD so I can slow it down to like half speed and really see what they did. This is where your students will give you an exam and they'll ask you to identify those characters. (laughs) Yes, how carefully were you paying attention? So that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.